Welcome to the Mercy Hill Church Podcast. This podcast is a collection of sermons and conversations intended to stir up your affections for Jesus. We hope this content helps you know and tell the story of Jesus better. So we're in the middle of a uh, series right now through the book of Micah, uh, seeing God's goodness in the darkness. And so if you have a Bible or you got an app on your phone, uh, if you could turn to Micah chapter 2, that's where we're going to pick up today uh, in Micah chapter 2. Uh, again, uh, I, I know if you are using a print Bible, uh, Micah is not a place we frequent very often, so please feel free this morning to use a table of contents in the front uh, so to help you find it. Of course, if you're using your phone, then man, you just scroll through the list and click, all right? It's going to be easy, easy, easy for you today. Some things uh, just go together, right? Some things just go together. Peanut butter and jelly, jelly that's right. Uh, Dean Martin and... Jerry Lewis, that's good. Mario and Luigi, University of Georgia football and national championships. That's right. That's right. It just fits, doesn't it? Just seems right. And then there's some things that obviously don't go together, right? A little more serious maybe, but drinking and driving does not go together. Pickles on your ice cream, not a good match, not a good match. I'm not a big fan of that uh, dill pickle flavor at uh, the Pelican Snowball's place either. Like, that seems a little extreme to me. Uh, mayonnaise and banana sandwich. Yeah. I've got a family member that I love that loves that combination, and uh, that sounds gross to me. All right? Does not belong together. Maybe peanut butter and banana. I don't know. You need to keep the mayonnaise off the banana sandwich, right? And then there are some things that go together. But we don't quite see it. Some things that flow from other things, some things that are connected, but we don't quite always make the connection. So what's going to happen in Micah chapter 2 is Micah, inspired by the Holy Spirit, in his prophecy, is going to make a connection for us that we don't always see. Could, could you pray with me? We just ask God to make plain in the scripture what we need to see and understand today. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for the gift of your word. Some of it is easy for us to grasp. Some of it is hard for us to understand. And so we just ask this morning by your spirit that you would help us to see clearly what you have in your word today. Amen. Amen. Micah chapter two, verse one. <clears throat> Remember chapter one? He's identifying idolatry in their culture and in their country. And so now chapter 2 starts like this. Woe to those who divide, devise wickedness and work evil on their beds. When the morning dawns, they perform it because it is in the power of their hand. Verse 2, they covet fields and seize them and houses and take them away. They oppress a man and his house, a man and his inheritance. It's a bleak picture. Their own countrymen oppressing each other. Verse three, therefore the Lord says, behold, I am against this family. I am devising disaster from which you cannot remove your necks. You shall not walk haughtily for it will be a time of disaster. In that day, they shall take up a taunt song against you and moan bitterly. And shall say, we are utterly ruined he changes the portion of my people, how he removes it from me. To the apostate, he allots our fields. 
Therefore, you will have none to cast the line by lot in the assembly of God. This is a bleak message that Micah has to deliver to the people of Judah. He calls out injustice and oppression for them. He says that because of what they've done, the way they've taken advantage of each other, that God is going to judge them. And we talked last week that that judgment had already come to the northern kingdom in Israel, that the Assyrians had already invaded or taking over this kingdom, and that the judgment of God was actually on their very doorsteps. And so what Micah does here in chapter 2 is he's actually connecting the two concepts together. He moves from chapter 1, where he identifies idolatry, then immediately into chapter 2 to show the people the fruit of their idolatry. Now, if you weren't here last week, we gave you a definition. I gave you a definition from Tim Keller about idolatry. Keller writes, an idol is whatever you look at and say in your heart of hearts, I have, if I have that, then I'll feel my life has meaning. Then I'll know that I have value. Then I'll feel significant and secure. And so that definition, as we talked about last week, includes images that have been carved, that the people would go and worship. But what do we say last week? That also includes good things. Good things that take over the priority of God in our lives. That it could be anything. Anything that when we look at it, we go, I have to have that because that thing's going to bring me meaning, value, purpose in my life. And so here, what Micah is going to show us is that there's a connection between our idolatry when we overvalue something, when we place it in the category of God and injustice. It's not always an obvious connection, but the connection is there. Now, why does their idolatry lead them to this place of corruption and oppression? Check this out. Psalm 115. We're going to put it on the screen if you don't want to turn there. This is what the psalmist writes, starting in verse 4. Their idols are silver and gold, the work of human hands. They have mouths but do not speak, eyes but do not hear. They have ears but do not hear, noses but do not smell. They have hands but do not feel, feet but do not walk. They do not make a sound in their throat. What does the psalmist say? An idol, a physical idol, looks like it can do stuff, but it can't, right? You can carve eyes, that doesn't mean it can see. You could fashion ears, that doesn't mean that it could hear. Then verse 8, check this out. Those who make them become like them. So do all who trust in him. This is the link. It's a principle we're going to see all the way through today. Write this down. We become like what we worship. If we worship what we craft with our hands, we start to believe that we're the creator that God is not. When we worship idols, Psalm 115 says, idols that can't speak, we're more likely to be silent about injustice. When we worship idols that can't see, we turn a blind eye to oppression. When we worship 
highest value something that doesn't feel, we're more likely to not embrace compassion. Or let me park it more in our real world. If our real God is money, then we will become over, overcome with greed. And just like a dollar bill doesn't care about our neighbors, we will start to no longer care about our neighbors. If our real God is sex, if we become consumed by it, then we start to value relationships because they get us sex instead of sex being a part of a relationship. And over time, our idols start to shape who we are. Because we become like what we worship. Or maybe we could say it this way, we imitate what we value. So um, years ago when Hudson was little, uh, he had one of those toy lawnmowers, right? You guys seen that before? And you know what he would do when I would get out in our front, little tiny little front yard at our first house? I'd cut the grass and what would he do? He cut the grass. This little fake lawnmower. Why? Why? That's right. Not because of, of his affection for lawn care, Right? Not, 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 because, not because he loves combustion engines, but because he wants to be like his dad. So he wants to do what I do. The same thing for us in every area of our lives. What we value the most starts to shape who we are. We become like what we worship. So in chapter two, Mike is going to show us two ways. Neither one of these ways is a lot of fun. Check it out, number one. The people's idolatry, number one, has led to the powerful oppressing the poor. You see that in verse one? Woe to those who devise wickedness and work evil on their beds, right? In the morning dawns they perform it because it is in the power of their hand. Verse two, they covet fields and seize them, houses and they take them away. They oppress a man and his house, a man and his inheritance. You, you see what's going on? The powerful in their society are operating with zero restraint. And so if they think about evil, here's the picture. They're at home, asleep on their bed. They have a dream about a way that they could take advantage of someone. And because there's no restraints, they just go out the next day and do it. They take a house from whomever they want to take a house from. They take property from whoever they want to take property from. It is a great injustice. They are oppressing their fellow countrymen. Look down at verse eight. He says, but lately my people have risen up as an enemy. You strip the rich robe from those who pass by trustingly with no thought of war. The women of my people you drive out from their delightful houses. From their young children you take away my splendor forever. Arise and go for there is no place to rest because of the uncleanness that destroys with a grievous destruction. Verse eight, who's the real enemy? Micah's looking, remember, there is an invading army at the door. But Micah says, no, no, who's the real enemy? You guys have been your own enemies for years. Why are we worried about the uh, invading Assyrians? The powerful in Judah have been taking advantage of the poor for years. The people of Judah have risen up to act like enemies to themselves. 
Verse 8, you strip the rich robe from those who pass by trustingly with no thought of war. Just taking advantage. People. You take their very best. They got one robe. You just go and take it. Verse 9, taking advantage of women and children, driving them out of their homes with no place to go. And so verse 10, he says, the reality is you're already not a place of rest. Right? Regardless of what happens with the Assyrians, you're already a people marked by a lack of peace because you're doing it to each other. You're destroying yourselves. This is just the next step if they invade. You've already developed a culture and a place of devouring each other for your own gain. Why? Because we become like what we worship. And at the heart of how we treat other image bearers is who we are trusting as God in our lives. And if money is my God, then I see people as a means to get it. And if sex is my God, then I see people as a means to get it. And if comfort is my God, then I see people as a means to get it. And if power is my God, then I see people as a means to get it, which always leads to, leads to corruption and injustice and oppression. Do you see how idolatry is actually at the heart of injustice? When we start to consume each other so that we can get what our real God is, And so we, too, have to ask this question in our hearts. When we survey our relationships, when we're really honest about our own behavior, we have to ask this question, is there an idol that lies in my heart? When I'm so quick to defend myself when someone's critical of me, Is that because I'm incredibly insecure? And my God is actually my own reputation or my own rightness? It gets worse. Because who should be calling out this oppression and corruption in their society? Prophets, preachers. God's given the people spokesmen to defend his word, to call out what's going wrong. This is number two, though. Check this out. Their idolatry has led to their prophets preaching lies. Verse six. Do not preach, thus they preach. One should not preach of such things. Disgrace will not overtake us. Should this be said, O house of Jacob, has the Lord grown impatient? Are these his deeds? Do not my words do good to him who walks uprightly? What's he saying? The prophets themselves have conformed their message to suit the people. They started preaching what they shouldn't preach. They've refused to call out the oppression and injustice around them. They're no longer standing up for the oppressed. If you want to know what a culture idolizes, look at what they preach. Which is why, which is why in American culture, 
And we have exported it everywhere around the world to our shame. We are full of health and wealth preachers in the church. Why? Because that's what you find in the scripture? No, because we don't want God. We want full, long lives with lots of money. And so we flock to preachers like in Micah chapter 2 who will tell us, if you just pray this certain formula, you're going to get lots of money. Why do you think we have so many name it and claim it preachers? Because we don't want a God who we must bend to his word and his will. We want a God who bends to our word and our will. We don't want to conform our character to God. We want God to conform our circumstances to us. Why do we have preachers in our churches who don't want to call out racism and oppression? Because we're scared that on social media, everybody's going to call us woke. We would rather deny that all people are made in the image of God than to look out of step with our particular church's political preferences. Now, quick disclaimer, and you listen, please, intently to me. I am not saying that we should be a church that labels every single person who says something we don't like on social media as a heretic. That also indicates idolatry in our hearts. Just because someone is popular doesn't mean they're a false teacher. And just because someone says something that you don't like doesn't mean there's a false teacher. But in the church, we are rampant with people who are untethered from the scripture in order to please you. And if you look at it, behind it, what do you see? Idolatry giving us what we really want, not what God said. Now, pulpits aren't the only place we find preachers in our culture. We have cultural prophets, too, whom we listen to on a regular basis and shape our view of the world. That might be college professors who teach from a cultural idol of academia and education being able to save us. Education is good, but it can't save or teaching from a cultural idolatry of self-discovery, self-determination, which is fine. Discover yourself, but you're ultimately not in charge of who you are. It could be listening to our favorite source of news that shapes our view of other image bearers. It could be listening to Instagram influencers encouraging you to live your best life now through implying, uh, applying certain products this way or that way or clothing or adventures or trips or whatever. And if you want to know what our idols are, just look at what we preach. What do we talk about the most? Listen, that Alex Jones in InfoWars can have millions of viewers while spewing baseless conspiracy theories about murdered elementary school children is an indication of our idolatry. It's saying something. 
that dude does Micah chapter 2. Dreams up bull. And then just does it on YouTube the next day. And makes a ton of money off of it. You know what it is? Injustice that is exposing our idolatry. The, the Kardashians, that we even know who they are. Right? Implicates us. That's our idolatry. Our idolatry of physical beauty and fame. Not connected to doing anything. I got to move on. Verse 11. And just like us, the people 700, 700 B.C. in Judah, they love it. Love it. Check out verse 11. If a man should go and utter wind and lies, saying, I will preach to you of wine and strong drink, he would be the preacher of this people. I love the way Eugene Peterson translated in the message. Check this out. If someone showed up with a good smile and a glib tongue and told lies from morning to night, I'll preach sermons that will tell you how you can get anything you want from God. More money, the best wines, you name it. You'd hire him on the spot as your preacher. I'm not even sure I have to comment on that further. But I want to be clear about what that means for you and me. That means you can weekly podcast your favorite preacher telling you how to live your best life now while you are actively taking advantage of the poor and your neighbors and walking in idolatry. Why? Because we become like what we worship. And how we respond to God's word exposes who we are trusting as our God. And I love when God speaks. Verse 6, what does he say? Do not my words do good with him who walks uprightly? You see, even the grace in it. God's saying, why, why are you rejecting the scripture? Why are you rejecting my word? Why are you rejecting my prophets? Don't you know I'm sending you this word because it's for your good? Don't you know if you conformed your character to the scripture, that's where you would find flourishing? Don't you know my heart for you? Don't you know my warnings are for your good? Don't you know I do good to those who walk the way that I designed humans to walk? Of course, the result of their love of injustice and their unwillingness to hear God's word leads to God's correction. The correction is going to be disaster. That's what we find in verse 3, 4, 5. Verse 5, God says, in fact, here's what's going to happen. You're not going to have a home with a lot line that you can even squabble over. There's not going to be a property left that you can take. It's all going to the Assyrians. It's all going somewhere else. All right, two Sundays, almost two messages of a lot of bad news, right? 
Are you ready for some good news? You're going to love it. Even after he rebukes them, God promises to restore them. Verse 12. It's beautiful. Look at it. I will surely assemble all of you, O Jacob. I will gather the remnant of Israel. I will set them together like sheep in a fold, like flock, uh, like a flock in its pasture, a noisy multitude of men. I love that lot. God says, I will assemble. Captain America isn't assembling the Avengers. No Avengers assemble here. God assembles. And he's going to bring his people back. And it's going to be so many, everybody's going to be like, man, this is a party. This is a noisy multitude. I can't even hear what's going on to so many people here. Verse 13, he who opens the breach goes up before them. They break through and pass the gate, going out by it. Their king passes on before them. Who at the head? The Lord at their head. It's good news. That's what God is saying. Even though you've abandoned me, I'm not going to abandon you. Even though you've denied justice to others, I will not deny mercy to you. Even though you've plotted evil against your neighbors, I will good, do good to you. Even though your preachers have not been good shepherds, I will come as a good shepherd to gather you. Even though you've rejected my word, I will not reject my word. I will not reject my promises to you. I will not reject you. Even though, even though you don't deserve it, God is saying to these people, I will save you. And even though you created this mess, I will restore you. Beautiful news. Now, we got to take a very quick Zach Morris, Saved by the Bell timeout. So we've got to answer a question now. We need it today, and we're going to need it for the rest of the series. And this is the question. How do I understand biblical prophecy? All right? I want you to see two things today. Number one, in every prophecy, there is a present story. There is what is going on here and now, the immediate storyline, right? When you want to understand the present, the present prophecy, the present story of the prophecy, you have to ask, what's the problem? What's the present problem? The second thing is there's a prevailing story in the scripture. So when we see prophecy in biblical text, we're asking these questions. What's the present story? What's going on historically in this moment? And what's the prevailing story? What is God doing in all of human history? What's the far redemptive fulfillment of this? What are the implications of this far down the road? And the key often to understanding the prevailing story is to ask this question. What is the prevailing problem of the human condition that isn't addressed here. All right, let me, let me try to make this sense of this with this passage. So what's the present story in our text? Talked about it last week. 2 Kings 18. Syrians have taken over the northern kingdom of Israel. They've invaded some cities. Remember we talked about those cities last week? They're pressing in at the gates of Jerusalem. They're threatening the king Hezekiah. Hezekiah has a choice to make. Is he going to go to the Egyptians for help, or is he going to trust God, right? And you remember we talked about Jeremiah. Hezekiah gets a word from Micah, and he chooses to trust God. What happens? He chooses to trust God. Some things change on the Assyrian side, and they back out. No fighting. They don't have to defend themselves. The Egyptians don't come. God fought, fights for them. 
So what happens in fulfillment of this prophecy in the present story? Hezekiah fulfills verses 12 and 13, right? The people couldn't leave the gates. Why? Because they were surrounded. But once the Assyrians backed out, Hezekiah leads the people out of the gates into freedom. Make sense? But what's the prevailing story? Well, what's the prevailing problem? See, even though Hezekiah trusts God and the Assyrians back away, and it'll be 150 years before that country is invaded again, this time by the Babylonians, and then they will have to go into exile. The prevailing problem is human idolatry, idolatry of our heart, right? That's still not solved. We still tend to create idols. We still tend to become like what we worship. And so the far fulfillment of verse 12 and 13 is the one who's going to come, the good shepherd, the rightful king, who's going to lead us out of the gates of our idolatry and our sin. And who's that? Jesus. And we're going to see this as we continue to go through Micah. We're going to get to chapter 5, and it is going to be crystal clear who he's been talking about this entire time. But the good news for us today in the prevailing story is God did come. God has looked at you and said, even though you abandoned me, I won't abandon you. God has looked at us and said, even though this is your own mess, I will restore you. And how do we know that? Because Jesus came. And that Jesus is the good shepherd who assembles, who draws in God's people into a flock. Jesus is the one that leads the charge. Jesus is the one that assembles the noisy multitude. That's Jesus. And the best news for those of us who are believers today is the worst news that we heard earlier in the text. Guess what? We become like who we worship. So 2 Corinthians 3, 18, Paul reminds us, and we all with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are what? Being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another, for this comes, for this comes from the Lord who is spirit. What did Paul say? You become like what you worship. And so the more you and I see Jesus as the good shepherd coming to rescue us that Micah is talking about, the more you and I worship him for his grace to us, that he rescued us when we didn't deserve it, guess what? The more gracious we become. The more you and I celebrate his forgiveness of us, forgiveness that we didn't buy or earn with our own good effort, guess what? We become more like Jesus. If we become like what we worship, the solution to our idolatry is not to cut down idols, although that's not a bad step. The solution is we need the good shepherd who assembles his people like a flock. The solution isn't more effort. The solution is more Jesus. And then you know what that produces? Produces what we sang about earlier. More than what? Any comfort. Jesus is better. Man, I used to worship comfort. Now, guess what? I'm not chasing after comfort. If it's uncomfortable, it's okay, because Jesus is better. Make my heart believe. That's our prayer. What do we sing? More than all riches. Man, I used to chase after money. And my greed was robbing me 
my relationships with other people. But now, what do I say? Man, Jesus is better. Man, I, I am now declaring at the very center of who I am, Jesus is better in every area of my life. And that starts to transform me. Now, just like, though, the people that Micah is writing to, we sometimes need God's rebuke, too. But what we see in the Scripture is God rebukes those he intends to restore. I love Stephen Um says this, Keep in mind God's way of executing restoration. Restoration comes through rebuke. This is how reality works. In life, when there is a problem, things well may get worse before they get better. But here's what he says. I love this. Listen to this. The life-saving cure follows a diagnosis of something life-threatening. In the book of Micah, the cure wonderfully comes. Restoration will follow rebuke. So that's why we have to say hard things to each other. That's why we have to look at God's word and receive it. That's why we have to pray that we would bend ourselves to God's will and God's word. Because when we receive that rebuke, the reason is because God intends to restore. The way he restores is through our faith in Christ. So we receive the rebuke. We go, man, this week, this week I was in a meeting and I got drugged through the mud. And I wanted to defend myself. It's Jesus who justifies me. And this week, this week I had this opportunity. I was going to make a ton of money. Just had to tell a little lie, just, just adjust a little thing. But I had to remember, man, my, my well-being is in God's hands, not my bank account. We receive those little rebukes, those little things we remember from the Lord. We look to Jesus and remind ourselves, man, Jesus is better. High, low, up, down. Thanks for listening to the Mercy Hill Church podcast. To keep up with the life of Mercy Hill Church, follow us on Facebook and Instagram. We believe the Christian life is best experienced in community. If you're in our area, we'd love for you to join us. If not, we'd love to help you get plugged into a local church near you. Have a great week.